The worship of the sun is one of the oldest and most universal practices in the world. Ra was the sun god of the Egyptian people, the source of their life. The Greeks honored Helios for giving light to both gods and men. The Aztecs sacrificed individuals each and every single day so that the sun god, which got its strength from human blood, would be able to successfully fight off its immortal enemies in the night. The Igbo of Africa believed that God lived within the sun, while the cult of Mitra in Persia celebrated the sun's rising each day, believing that the unconquered sun had been born of a virgin on December 25th. And the Polynesian demigod Maui brazenly attempted to capture the sun atop a Hawaiian volcano by leaping out from behind a carefully sculpted rock. Moses, according to the Old Testament, worked hard to draw people's attention from the brilliance of the sun, imploring them to take care lest when you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and all the stars, you will be seduced and drawn away to pay worship and adoration to the creatures which the Lord your God has made. Christopher Columbus began his New World Adventure writing that following the light of the sun we left the old world. And Sir Isaac Newton believed that this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. The sun is inspirational, awe-inspiring, and worthy of our praise and thanks meaning that one has to be supremely confident in themselves if they were to proclaim themselves as the Sun King. That was exactly what Louis XIV claimed, that in the same way that we revolve around the Sun, the entire kingdom of France, perhaps even the world itself, revolved around him. And the amazing thing was that he wasn't entirely wrong. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the first in a series of five regarding Louis XIV. Episode 1, The Dawn of the Sun King. In order to get to the story of Louis XIV, we have to first go through the life and legacy of Louis XIII, as well as his predecessor, Henry IV. For the Sun King inherited quite a bit of his power from his predecessors. The lineage of the French kings had been well established for a thousand years. If you treat this tradition, rather than the leader's actual lineage, as an unbroken dynasty, the Francs rank as one of the world's oldest civilizations. Thus, their greatest stories oftentimes require one to focus on the prequels first. Henry, Louis's grandfather, grew up a prince of Navarre, a small independent kingdom in what is now northern Spain. He was baptized as a Catholic, but his mother raised him as a Protestant. 
1572, his mother's death resulted in a promise for Henry to marry Margaret of Valois, the daughter of Henry II of France and Catherine de' Medici, the daughter of the infamous Florence banker whose legendary spending jump-started the Renaissance, Lorenzo de' Medici. Henry II was pretty important as well, as he happened to have been the former king of France until a wayward, splintered, jousting lance from the captain of his Scottish guard ended his life. Our Henry, Henry IV, didn't quite know what he was marrying into, but that's to be expected of a 19-year-old young man. Catherine, his mother-in-law, had been ruling with an iron fist since the death of her husband, first through her sickly 15-year-old son, Francis II, who was unfortunately married to Mary, the Queen of Scots, and then governing through the next of her brood, Charles IX. It was Charles who had ultimately agreed to the union with the leaders of Navarre. Now 22 years old, he had managed to wrest control of his kingdom away from his domineering mother and sought to reconcile his nation's number one divide, religion. German monk Martin Luther had begun an impossible-to-predict cascade of events when he dramatically nailed his 95 theses directed against the Catholic Church to the doors of his church in Wittenberg on October 31, 1517. Foremost among these wide-ranging effects were the launching of the European Wars of Religion, a series of wars that waged across the continent during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. The division between Protestants and Catholics were the direct cause of hundreds of conflicts, while intensifying numerous more. The Huguenots were the major Protestant group residing in Catholic France during this time period. Their religious faction's number one complaint was that the Pope resided over a worldly church, rather than a religious one. Martin Luther had opened this Pandora's box when he revealed some of the corruption that he had personally witnessed during his trip to the Vatican, in which he saw priests tolerating and occasionally forming inappropriate relationships with prostitutes. The most extreme of the Huguenot believers began to kill priests, monks, and nuns while destroying sacred images, relics, and church buildings. At their height in France, they controlled 60 fortified cities, presenting a continuous internal threat to the Catholic hierarchy. Their growing strength resulted in a temporary ceasefire, during which both sides prepared for what seemed to be the inevitable resumption of hostilities. Charles believed that a marriage alliance to his sister, which would bring a prominent Huguenot into the line of succession, would prevent a resumption of the worst moments of the religious civil war. But the king's plan wasn't the only one being put into motion. His top advisor, who happened to be a Huguenot himself, was slowly but surely steering the king into a conflict with the states of Spain hoping that starting a war there would prevent the looming resumption of the civil war that appeared to be clear to everyone. But the king's mother Catherine, a staunch Catholic, didn't trust this Huguenot advisor who had usurped her role as the king's chief counsel, 
An opportunity thus arose from her daughter's upcoming nuptials. The wedding would draw in Huguenots from across the kingdom, upon which Catherine's assassins purchased with de' Medici funds would dispatch the king's pesky advisor. This was designated to happen a few days after the vows were said so that her daughter could still have a fabulous wedding day. The assassins botched the job, however, merely wounding their target. The king immediately demanded an investigation into the near-death experience of his friend and advisor, but Catherine, his mother, knew where that would lead, and immediately went with Plan B, which the History Channel eloquently explains as setting off an orgy of killing that resulted in the massacre of tens of thousands of Huguenots all across France. And you thought that a toaster was a bad wedding gift. The Huguenots that had assembled in Paris for the wedding demanded immediate justice and grew so angry at the perceived lack thereof that rumors began to circulate regarding the resumption of the Civil War, which would be the fourth time that they had taken up arms against the ruling Catholic elite. Charles, seemingly in a panic about everything, hastily proceeded to okay the assassination of a few of their leaders without much planning or forethought. It was the sound of the king's foot soldiers marching towards their targets in Paris that apparently alerted the city's Catholic population that something was afoot. They emerged from their doorsteps and began pulling known Huguenots into the streets in order to butcher them. It only escalated from there. Simon Gouliart, a Protestant minister, claims that the king's soldiers went with their men from house to house wherever they thought they might find Huguenots, breaking down the doors, then cruelly massacring those they encountered without regard to sex or age. The city's gates were closed, preventing many from fleeing the carnage, which lasted for three terrible days. Goulart claimed that carts piled high with the dead bodies of noble ladies, women, girls, men, and boys were brought down and emptied into the Seine River, which was covered with dead bodies and ran red with blood. News of the Parisian massacre spread, setting off mass reprisal attacks across the nation and in a nod to how militant the Vatican was at this point of the Reformation, the Pope sang a special mass of thanksgiving upon receiving the news. All of this celebration put young Henry IV in an awkward position. It had been his wedding, after all, which had lured the elite Huguenots into what had ultimately turned out to be a death trap. His mother-in-law was the mastermind of it, and his brother-in-law had given the official order for the massacre to begin. His wife, who he had married a mere four days earlier, argued passionately to spare his life, which the king did, only after Henry converted from being a Huguenot to the religion of his birth, Catholicism.
None of this should have mattered, except for the fact that King Charles passed away from tuberculosis at the young age of 23. Catherine's son, Henry III, took over temporarily, as it was well known that he was gay and thus incredibly unlikely to produce an heir. The family settled on Charles's youngest brother as heir, with the expectation that he would ascend as soon as he was old enough to sire a child. He took over, but never produced that child, as the little brother slash heir died himself at age 29 from malaria, setting up a succession crisis that would be rendered meaningless as soon as Henry III sired a son. His preferences, however, made that exceptionally unlikely. While they anxiously awaited news regarding a delivery from a stork, Henry IV was named heir to the throne. The powerful Catholic League, which I assume without any evidence is a precursor to the DC Comics Justice League, demanded that Henry, as a former Huguenot, should be cut out of the line of succession, to which the king reluctantly agreed. And thus began the War of the Three Henrys, the plot of which was just as confusing as DC's Justice League movie. Henry IV fought for his right to remain in line for the French throne. Meanwhile, King Henry III assassinated Henry I, the Duke of Guise, and the leader of the Catholic League, for which the people of France freaked out and turned on Henry III which caused him to align with Henry IV, who started this all by fighting with Henry III over the right to become Henry IV. Make sense? Probably not. And it also didn't make much sense for a Catholic friar to assassinate the Catholic king, Henry III. But that also happened at the end of the so-called War of the Three Henrys. The friar cleverly pretended to have a message to the king getting close enough to him in order to whisper in his ear something sweet before stabbing Henry in the chest. As the king lay dying, his last words were for the court to be loyal to his brother-in-law, Henry IV. Still, Catholics fought the notion, aligning themselves first behind Henry's uncle, who happened to be at that particular moment a prisoner of Henry IV. Next, the court officially picked the infant daughter of Philip II of Spain to ascend to the throne. That had to truly make Henry feel insulted. In order to halt the momentum from the mob, Henry publicly recommitted to follow Catholicism, for real this time, reportedly telling confidants that his conversion was real as France is worth a mass. The lunacy of the prior six years had been enough and Henry became accepted, for the most part, by the French populace. He became the first in the line of the House of Bourbon to sit on the French throne. Henry IV turned out to be a pretty good ruler, adept at doing exactly what Charles IX had believed he would do when he had approved Henry's marriage to his sister. He began to settle the French religious wars by getting the Huguenots to disarm and dismantle their 60 fortified cities. He was perfectly positioned to play the role of peacemaker as he had cultivated friendships with their leaders during this time as an adherent of their faith. 
they were willing to disarm in exchange for the Edict of Nantes, which granted religious tolerance to them as an olive branch. Henry's rule is a shining example of liberalism as he expanded the reach and power of the central government to unprecedented levels, although each of the next two Louis are going to go significantly further. Under Henry, the French government began to take on the economic responsibility for the construction and upkeep of roads. It took a hand guiding agricultural policy and developed a modern-day justice system. He was a bridge between the two major faiths of France, as well as a literal bridge builder. The Pont Neuf, a bridge that remains standing in Paris today, finally connected the two sides of the city, which had historically been divided by the sign. He expanded the Louvre and became a patron of the city's artists, whom he invited to live and work within its fortress's empty lower floors. His economic policy was described as a chicken in every pot, for the king rightfully believed that the people would be less likely to revolt if they were well fed. This would be a lesson that would be unfortunately forgotten by the time we reached the French Revolution. France flourished and expanded beneath Henry IV's rule, with numerous expeditions being sent across the Atlantic, successfully claiming New France, which is more commonly referred to as Canada today. Henry even limited the power of the royal aristocracy and began to give some power back to the people of France. But not all was well beneath the surface. His former religious belief still ruffled the feathers of a number of Frenchmen, and Henry, who had earned the moniker Henry the Good, faced down 12 different assassination attempts during his rule. Ironically, the king once again played the role of uniting the Catholics and the Huguenots as both Christian sects attempted to murder him. The winner of the deadly game was a Catholic fanatic named Francois Ravillac who managed to stab Henry to death while the king's coach was stopped in traffic. Evidently, he hadn't made the roads quite wide enough to save himself. The French crown passed on to Henry's nine-year-old son, Louis XIII. His was a twisted bloodline. Henry had annulled the marriage to Catherine de' Medici's daughter, which had made him king in the first place, in order to marry one of her cousins, Marie de' Medici, in order to pay off the debt he had accrued during the Three Henry's War, in order to obtain the throne. Louis was the transactional product of this second infusion of de' Medici cash. With a nine-year-old sitting on the throne of his assassinated father, France could most optimistically be described as a monarchy on a knife's edge. The influential Italian bankers were accustomed to being in charge, and the boy's mother acted as regent until Louis reached 16, despite the fact that French law stipulated that the boy could run the country as early as age 13. Her rule ended in what can only be described as a Shakespearean drama. Marie, as regent, picked a number of fights with the head of the Condé family, 
seemingly winning the feud after imprisoning the head of that family in 1615. The justification for the arrest was that it was necessary for the protection of her top Italian advisor, a foreigner who was detested by the rest of the French nobility. King Louis, now 16 at this point, listened to the French nobility and went behind his mother's back and ordered the arrest of her foreign advisor. The seizure of the man was botched, and the suspect was accidentally killed during the arrest process. Doubling down on their mistake, the king's soldiers arrested the suddenly deceased man's wife and condemned her for witchcraft. With a clear break between the king and his mother, there was no choice for Marie but to go to exile. Over the next four years, Louis tried to run the country as his father had, but nothing seemed to work in his favor. The Thirty Years' War put France in an awkward position of whether to support a traditional ally or the Catholic Church. In order to fund new infrastructure projects, the government began to raise money through the official selling of government offices. But that only resulted in charges of corruption being levied at the crown, which in turn inspired new Huguenot uprisings. Louis was so befuddled with what to do that he turned to his exiled mother. After all, she had more experience running the country than he did at this point. Rather than reinstalling her to power as she desired, the king installed her top remaining advisor, as a number of them had been executed rather than exiled. This advisor would go on to become known to history as Cardinal Richelieu. A man whom the words evil genius are perpetually attached to. Such was the role that he was assigned to in the French literary epic, The Three Musketeers. The Catholic Church came to a half-hearted defense of their cardinal when the BBC leveled the dreaded evil genius card in 2014. Their defense, however, doesn't make the cardinal look great, as the church admitted that he was ruthlessly ambitious, endlessly self-serving, and easily compared to Stalin. Although the cardinal was initially groomed for a military career, family health issues pushed him towards a life devoted to serving the church. He was a naturally charismatic charmer and rose through the ranks fast, becoming a priest at the age of 22, just two years after he had contracted the sexually transmitted disease of gonorrhea while serving in the military. It also helped that his family had previously been gifted the position of the Bishop of Lucan by King Henry III. This was a bit of a shock appointment, considering that Richelieu's father had revenge murdered the head of a rival house just a few years before receiving the boon. The gift was bestowed for the family's military service during the wars against the Huguenots, which served to show how closely entwined the church was with the French monarchy, as well to put on display the rampant corruption that was endemic to both. The Pope bowed to Henry IV's demands and gave Richelieu a special dispensation to immediately ascend to the position of bishop at the youthful age of 22, making him one of the youngest in history. 
The average age today for the position is 40 years old, and the handful of those that achieved it earlier than Richelieu are all either King's bastards or their half-brothers. As young as Richelieu was, he seems downright ancient compared to the record holder for the youngest to obtain the crochet and mitre. That distinction belongs to the six-month-old second son of mad King George III. Richelieu approached his new position with the brutal efficiency that he was known for. During his tenure as bishop, he implemented the Council of Trent reforms, established rules for writing out church documents in French, and became a representative of the first estate in France's do-little parliament known as the Estates General. But these accomplishments weren't enough for what would prove to be one of the most ambitious men in history. He attached himself to the Queen Regent Marie de Medici and was expelled from the halls of power after she had been exiled. Showcasing how high he had risen as the Queen's Secretary of State, Richelieu was one of her few attendants who was singled out for banishment. He was later recalled in order to serve as the chief negotiator in the detente between estranged king and mother and was subsequently restored to court. In 1622, he rose to the position of cardinal and became an essential voice advising King Louis once the French wars of religions involving the Huguenots flared up again. He became the king's principal minister in 1629 after revealing mostly true rumors regarding the corruption of the nation's top finance minister. Having spent most of his life letting others do everything for him, King Louis XIII had discovered during his mother's banishment that running the day-to-day -day operations of a country was incredibly time-consuming. Thus, from 1624 to 1642, Cardinal Richelieu was tasked with running France on behalf of the king. From the onset of his arrival to the political scene, it was clear that Richelieu valued power above all else. Indeed, his most lasting legacy will be an entrenching absolutism within the French system. His role as cardinal, which placed him in easy-to-spot bright red robes, singled him out in ways that Richelieu craved. He at one point told the king that the desire of the church was to have royal power, as assured that it might be as a firm rock which crushes all that opposes it. Under the cardinal, the church would have the thrones back in what would continuously prove to be a mutually beneficial arrangement. The cardinal preferred the dark arts of shadowy propaganda rather than direct confrontation in order to achieve his goals. Thus, he established and utilized a complex constellation of proxies to carry out his bidding. The ultimate goal was a revival of French exceptionalism, for as Dr. Iskander Raymond, an influential writer for geopolitical think tanks, says, Richelieu was raised in a country rent by confessional divisions, racked with extreme poverty and famine, and haunted by the specter of its own decline. 
France's internal weakness left lesser European powers descending as vultures to pick over the nation's remains. In Richelieu's mind, absolutism was the solution. Thus, even though Louis XIII didn't seem to care or do much in order to achieve ultimate power, his red eminence was about to make him the single most powerful player on the world stage. One of the best ways to establish themselves upon the international stage can be explained utilizing standard prison logic. Specifically, the notion that one should spend their first day in prison picking a fight with one of the biggest, nastiest inmates you can find. The logic stands that everyone will then know you are tough, and thus leave you alone. Essentially, you are starting one fight in order to avoid the next ten. I decided long ago that I was far too pretty for jail, and thus never launched my own criminal enterprise. But that plan seems slightly cray-cray, as I imagine that the horrific human being has at least a few friends who might seek out revenge. The nastiest inmates in the 1624 prison of Europe were the nearby Habsburg empires of Austria-Hungary and Spain. The French blamed most of their internal problems upon the Habsburgs, whom they regularly insultingly referred to as Mongols. The Cardinal worked overtime to set up France as the alternative to Habsburg universalism. Iskander writes that for Richelieu it appeared evident that France was in many ways the new Rome and the Spanish Habsburgs, with its kaleidoscope of ethnicities, dispersed territories, and maritime empire, were Carthage. The result was a revving up of France's role in the Thirty Years' War. Despite being nearly encircled, poorer, and less internally cohesive, Richelieu put France on the attack. Attempting to slowly bleed the prison's biggest badass to the point of submission, in order to succeed, he forged unlikely alliances with European Protestant groups, and even occasionally pushed the Pope's own garrisons out of key positions in favor of loyalist French forces. At times, Richelieu risked being labeled a heretic by his own church. Perhaps most threatening to his position was anger emanating from the former Queen Regent. But the crafty Cardinal got himself out of imminent danger on what became known as the Day of the Dupes. The event began when Louis XIII became seriously ill, to the point that numerous people, including his mother, believed that he would soon pass away from this world. Marie de Medici, still upset that her power had been usurped by her son and former advisor, plotted with the king's younger brother to physically seize Louis's wife upon the moment of his death, forcibly marrying her to her brother-in-law and then proclaiming himself king through both bloodline and marriage. If you think about it, it was a pretty gross plan, especially considering that it originated from the mind of their own mother. 
but the king survived his near-death illness only to be gifted an ultimatum by his mother. It was either her or Richelieu. Now in my experience, one should only give an ultimatum if they are already sure of the answer. Faced with a treasonous mother who had just attempted to kidnap his wife so that his little brother could replace him, Louis intelligently chose the cardinal, whom Marie would continue to plot against while serving out her exile. The scheming of Marie de Medici, a member of the world's richest family, would continue until her impoverished death in 1642. The term Day of the Dupes came about to describe the event after it was the Cardinal's carriage that returned from Versailles, rather than the Queen Mother, who had prior to her departure informed all who would listen that they would never see the man in red again. Upon the Cardinal's return, he obtained a confession from Anne, Louis's wife, that she had known all about the plot and had let it proceed. Pathetically, not even his wife desired for King Louis's rule to continue. It was only for the fact that the couple had yet to produce an heir that Anne was allowed to remain sitting on a throne next to her husband. Paying for France's portion of the Thirty Years' War against the Habsburgs drained the finances of the country, obligating Richelieu to significantly raise taxes. French law ensured that the aristocracy and the clergy were immune from such tax increases, and thus the burden of Louis's wars fell mostly upon the poor. As a result, several internal uprisings had to be put down harshly by the cardinal. But like America in the Cold War, the French economy was better equipped to deal with the escalating costs of war and gradually push the larger but less nimble Habsburg Empire towards bankruptcy. Although we expect men of the cloth to live like Jesus and give away most of their earthly possessions to the needy among us, Richelieu lived a life of elite luxury. He built himself a royal palace. It was so majestic that it continues to serve today as the seat of the Ministry of Culture. This palace was in addition to a number of houses that he owned, maintained, and rented out throughout the kingdom. Historian Joseph Bergen describes Richelieu as being obsessed with the pursuit of power and wealth. He achieved the status of one of the richest Frenchmen in the long and storied history of that country. Solid gold set with rubies and diamonds were injected into pieces of art commissioned for the man of faith. He became a connoisseur of imported Chinese porcelains, Persian carpets, as well as cabinets from Italy. Having no children of his own, he donated his palace and most of its contents to Louis XIII who made it the first home of his firstborn son, the man who would become the Sun King. The legacy of Cardinal Richelieu is crucial to our story. First, he established absolute rule within the French monarchy. Prior to this, everyone named Henry seemed to have a claim to the throne. Louis wasn't the longest-serving monarch, but he did last on the throne for 33 years, 
long enough to establish a clear line of succession and begin the French exploration and colonization of the New World. He ensured his rule by elevating his supporters and ordering the deaths of his opponents, establishing a patronage system that Louis the Sun King would steadfastly exploit in order to finance his conquering of the world. If the king wanted money, it was Richelieu's job to find it. He massively cracked down on the corruption that was endemic of monarchs during this era, but his incessant raising of taxes turned the poor against the throne. But his brutal repression in the face of repeated uprisings kept the people from being able to do anything about it. By the end of his life, the French people will again believe that God had determined that the Bourbons were destined to rule and that they were again his chosen people on earth. Emerging from the Thirty Years' War, the French were soon bragging again about their exceptional status as the survivors of the Trojan War, heirs to Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire, and home to the purest language in Europe. In other words, they had again become the snooty French that outsiders had always believed they were destined to be. During this time, the French military became dominant creating a modern navy and killing two-fifths of the population in Central Europe in their prison fight takedown of the Habsburgs. Through his actions, the Catholic Church and French monarch were united as one, proving to be a force that appeared unstoppable. After removing his external threats, his red eminence pivoted inward, removing the protections granted to the Huguenots by Henry IV before then annihilating their power base relegating them to the pages of history. Although the king followed the cardinal into death one year later, Richelieu had ensured that his successor, the hand-picked Cardinal Mazarin, would become the regent to Louis' heir, allowing Richelieu's work to continue from beyond the grave. The work that the Cardinal did allowed Louis to simply live his life. On closer examination, it isn't a life that we would have likely chosen for ourselves. He had married Anne of Austria, the influential daughter of Philip III of Spain. The arrangements occurred before the empires had become locked in mortal conflict. The two were engaged at the age of 10 and married when they both turned 14. The two were second cousins, and thus likely, unbeknownst at the time, to produce children who were either stillborn or sickly. Although the two newlyweds had not yet achieved a state of puberty, they were forced to consummate their marriage immediately. The night was traumatic, to say the least, as two nurses sat in the room in order to instruct the way too young lovers and Louis's mother personally inspected the sheets for blood the next morning. It would be six months before Louis would even eat in the same room as his wife, let alone return to her bedroom. The court began to wonder if he felt ashamed at his performance, and thus they made him sit in the room in order to watch his cousin perform the deed on his wedding night. Louis applauded during the act, but again did not return to his own spouse. The French court grew suspicious of Anne, 
particularly after France went to war with her Habsburg family. But she was neither a traitor nor at fault for the Union's inability to produce a child. She became pregnant twice, but each resulted in a stillborn miscarriage. When the king reached the age of 37, France was likely abuzz about the potential for another succession crisis when it was announced that the long-suffering couple had managed to finally produce an heir. Their son, Louis XIV, was considered to be a miracle baby, a marvel when it was least expected, particularly since his father had already been nicknamed by his people as Louis the Chaste. His lack of intimate relations with his wife and the complete absence of known mistresses has led most to believe that Louis XIII was gay. The historical record tells us that his interests as a teenager were focused on male courtiers. But there exists no evidence of homosexual affairs, meaning he either suppressed that part of his identity or was extremely good at keeping it private. Then again, it is just as entirely possible that the embarrassment that he was put through on his wedding night ruined him for all relationships. It can be fun here to point out that Louis XIII was the monarch that made it fashionable for men to wear wigs for the first time since antiquity. I imagine that the drag community likes to imagine that the act was done by one of their own, rather than a privileged straight elite. Louis would pass away from tuberculosis at the age of 41, leaving his four-year-old son, Louis XIV, as King of France. Although he was only five years younger than the 13th had been upon his ascension, the boy king was set up with Cardinal Mazarin to competently guide what was now one of the richest, most religious, and most powerful kingdoms in the world. The foundation for the Sun King has been set. Join us for our next episode as Louis the Boy King will learn to test the ropes of absolute rule. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.